Hi, this is Jay Baer of Convince and Convert Consulting, and welcome to the new Content Experience Show. Content Experience is the new content marketing. It's not only about reaching audiences where they are, but engaging them with personalized, useful content that matters. On the Content Experience Show, we share strategies, tips, and real-world examples of how leaders are taking their content marketing to the next level. Now, here's your hosts, Randy Frisch from Uberflip and Anna Harak from Convince and Convert Consulting. Hey, everyone, it's Randy Frisch, and Anna's with me here. We had an awesome podcast this past week, and really excited to tell you about it. Make sure you know what to expect in here, so you can cue this up as one of the ones that you're going to either listen to right now or on your drive home, whatnot. Anna, we had Alan join us from Track Maven, and he's just so much fun, great energy, great stories. Uh, why don't you tell everyone about Alan from what, you know, what the formal resume is, but like, I want to talk about what he talked about. Yeah. So Alan, um, just to give everybody some insight, is the founder and CEO of TrackMaven. That's probably where everybody knows the, you know, the world famous marketing analytics platform that's hugely popular. Um, he has also been on the 30 under 30 lists for both Inc. and Forbes. Um, he's also a contributor to fastcompany.com. And if that wasn't enough, he also has a book coming out called The Creative Curve. And we talked to him a lot about it today. Yeah, it was cool. At, at first, to be honest, I didn't really understand why he wrote this book tied to creativity because I often associate Track Maven as this company that's all about delivering ROI. But his point was you you get to that ROI with effective creative ideas. And I think the part that I took from this is that anyone can be creative, right? Um, you know, it's funny, I, we didn't talk about this, but I love uh, the the movie Ratatouille. Have you ever seen Ratatouille, Anna? Oh yeah, it's amazing. It's I love it. It's such a great movie, and it's all about like the movie Ratatouille. If you've never seen it, it's about this idea that anyone can cook, right? Like, and it's like mouse or rat or whatever he is can can cook, and it it you know shapes the whole movie. And I, I felt like the same type of vibe coming from Alan as he talked about the idea of who can be creative. Totally. Yeah. He actually talks a lot about the fact that we've sort of been fed this false idea that, you know, only creative people can be creative, um, which I subscribe to entirely that anybody can be creative, just like Remy the Rat from Ratatouille. Anybody can cook. Anybody can be creative. And I even talked about in the beginning of this, this show how, you know, when I conduct a lot of workshops, you always sort of have one person who says something like, well, I'm just not creative or like, oh, I can't do that. I'm not creative enough. And to which I think is sort of a cop out, but also I think that people are led to believe, well, you either have creativity or you don't. And Alan actually has some really good tips, tricks, and frameworks for how even people who don't think that they're quote unquote creative can actually sort of spark their sort of creative genius and get all these amazing ideas out that they didn't even know that they had. So first of all, I fully agree with you, but I have to stop you there because like, did you actually just know offhand the name of the rat from the movie? That was pretty amazing. You, you just did that. So matter of fact, like I was impressed that I remembered the name Ratatouille, but you had the rats name down. Wow. That was, that was pretty impressive. I've seen it a few times. Um, also, Patton Oswalt is one of my favorite comedians ever. He was the voice of Remy the Rat. There you go. There you go. Well, you know, let's let's not keep people from, you know, 
their Ratatouille experience or their time with Alan's going to listen to this, by the way, and he's going to be like, what did you take from my podcast? Um, but, uh, but seriously, you're going to listen to this. You're going to hear all the inspiration that, that Alan brought around how to be creative, how to take your marketing to the next level. And I believe you brought it in. So let's roll to that podcast. Hey, Alan, thank you so much for joining us today. It is so great to have you here. It is so great to be here. Just so everybody can get to know a little bit about you, would you mind telling everybody a little bit about you? Yeah, so my name is Alan Gannett, and I'm the CEO of a company called TrackMaven that's based in Washington, D.C. We are a marketing analytics platform used by a lot of the world's leading brands, like the NBA uses us, Saks Fifth Avenue, Honda, MailChimp, a whole sort of fun variety of folks. And what we do is basically help you uncover what are the patterns in your marketing data. So what are the stories that are resonating? What audiences are resonating? Um, what are the topics that are working really well? And then right now, I am sort of in book mode because I have a book coming out um, June 12th, which is my first book. And the book is all about the science and process around creativity. And so I realized that when I was talking to clients and I was talking to marketers that most people view creativity as this thing that's just like have or have not situation. And that is so far from the truth. And so the book is um, the book is my attempt to to break that. Nice. I love that you bring in the science behind creativity because I agree. I think people out there, you know, either think they have it or they don't. And one of my sort of biggest pet peeves when I would run or even when I still run, you know, brainstorming workshops or, you know, ideation workshops is you get, you always get that person that's like, well, I'm just not creative. So to help sort of level set the playing field, what exactly is creativity to you and how do you kind of define it with the book? Yeah. So basically what I did for the book was there's three inputs. So one is I interviewed about 25 living creative geniuses. These are billionaires like David Rubenstein, you know, startup um, moguls like, you know, Kevin Ryan who did Guilt, MongoDB, Business Insider, and more. I interviewed Alexis O'Hanian from Reddit. I interviewed Nina Jacobson, who's the producer behind The Hunger Games, Pool vs. O.J. Simpson, like Pasek and Paul, who did Devin Hansen, La La Land, and The Greatest Showman. So really eclectic sort of mix of sort of modern creative geniuses. That was one bucket of inputs. The second bucket is I interviewed all of the living, leading academics who study creativity, both in sociology, neuroscience, um, in sociology. So these are folks like Mihai Chexent Mihai, Kanders Erickson. And then I read thousands and thousands of pages of peer-reviewed research on creativity. And the book is split up into two, two sections. So the first half is focused on debunking this mythology around creativity. And the second half is explaining things you can actually do to enhance your creativity. And I tell stories about them from the people I interviewed and I explain the science of why they work. And so creativity is one of these things that it's so interesting because, you know, I hate to say this just because of, you know, all the, the time we live in, but there's a lot of like hashtag fake news about creativity where, you know, you see the, on the covers of magazines, you know, Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or Taylor Swift, right? These people who are these sort of like very individualistic, there's these geniuses who like for them, this stuff is so easy. And the thing is is that there's actually tons and tons and tons of research on creativity. It's actually super well um, understood from a scientific perspective of what creativity is. And there's actually consensus that creativity is something you can learn and get better at. And creativity, um, for me, what it means 
is it's really this ability to create things that are the right idea at the right time, right? It's that ability to consistently create things that are the right idea at the right time. And when you dive into creativity, what you realize is that the right idea at the right time is actually, you can actually really understand that from a scientific perspective, right? What does compose a hit? That's wild. Yeah. I'm curious, like, first of all, those must have been really interesting interviews. I mean, just sitting there and you probably have watched back on, hopefully you recorded all these, like the, those insights must be you know, really exciting and you know, to look back on and think about where you're going. You know, maybe you can talk about some people that you've either encountered in your own career who have learned how to be creative and you know, what are some of the things that they did to get there? I mean, I, I consider myself a creative guy, but I, I know that feeling when you're working with someone, they're like, okay, I'm going to be that left brain person. Totally. So, so I explain in the book, um, these four, these four things I found. So I call them the four laws of the creative curve. And the first one I actually think is one of the most sort of foundational. And that is, you know, we think about creativity as this thing that you're constantly doing, right? You're a doer, you create things. And in fact, there's that like social media meme, like 90% of people consume, 9% of people engage, 1% of people create. And, you know, we've sort of put these creators on a pedestal as people who are constantly doing. But one of the things I found that all the creators I interviewed did is they all actually spent a huge amount of time consuming they just spent a huge amount of time consuming information. So, for example, I interviewed Ted Sarandos, who's the chief content officer of Netflix. He's been there since 2000. He's overseeing the entire sort of giant pivot to original programming. He oversees all the content decisions. And he got his start, and he was literally a clerk at a video rental store in the 1980s. And he decided that rather than you know do his homework, he was going to watch every single video in the store. Every single video, I'm not being hyperbolic, literally every single video in the store. And he credits that to this sort of foundational sort of taste that he developed, this ability to understand and recognize what people would like, what people would not like, what would be familiar, what would not be familiar. And I talk about it in the book quite a bit, and we can talk more about it later, but I talk a lot in the book about how the balance of familiarity and novelty is really important to consumer taste. And so consumption is a really critical part of that. And it's not just consumption like in childhood, right? So for example, you know, J.K. Rowling, you know, talks about how, not to me, but in other interviews, she talks about how as a kid to get away from her parents fighting, she would like lock herself in her room and just read and read and read. How in college she had all these library finds because she was checking out so many books and not checking them back in time. And so consumption early on is really important, but also the people I interviewed, they kept consuming. So even to this day, even as these people are busy, they have private planes, they have, you know, time is such an important asset to them. I found that most of them still spend about three to four hours every single day consuming information. I call this the 20% principles, this idea they spend 20% of their time of their waking hours consuming information. And it's so interesting to me because like it, it they actually spend almost more time in a typical day consuming than creating because you have to understand the sort of context within which you're creating what's already out there what's cliche what's new what's different what's the right level of new and what's the right level of novel and so that's one of those things i think is really foundational yeah i love that go for it and i have a million questions but jump in <laughs> yeah no same i i wish this were all on paper because i want to like circle start and highlight all of this 
Um, because first I was, I, I wish we're on video cause I was completely rolling my eyes at that meme that's out there. Second, um, I coming from my creative background, everything you're saying, I'm, I'm so hundred percent on board with, and I love because especially when you get creatives in a professional setting or an office-like setting, there's sort of this myth that because they're quote-unquote creative, it's just what they do. So therefore, put them at a desk and they'll just crank out creative concepts over and over and over again, which in reality, there's no faster way to burn out and frustrate your creative team because it's not just this magical, endless well of things. You have to replenish with ideas and you have to give yourself space to breathe. And I love the entire idea of consumption and going out and just taking that time to replenish and see what else is out there. Oh, I have the craziest story for you. So I um, I spent a day with the flavor R&D team at Ben & Jerry's, which is like the most fun part of this whole book process. Oh, I bet. <laughs> and, one of, and it's like super interesting to me because literally most of their year is just consuming information related to food trends. So they do these things called trend treks. Say that 10 times fast. Trend treks, which they go to different cities and they literally just like eat and drink. So they'll like go to like the little local grocery store, see what like fresh ingredients they have. They'll go to like the hip bars and try the newest cocktails. They'll try the newest restaurants. They all read like food and wine magazines. The younger ones are constantly on Instagram looking at food porn, seeing what the trends are. And so they're constantly ingesting, ingesting information so they can understand like what is the sort of the zeitgeist of food and taste right now. And that's like most of their year. It's not creating ice cream. It's actually just like reading and listening and ingesting food, literally. So I have a, a question for you and, and then we'll take a break after this one. But so I, I had a debate with someone recently as to when we start to listen and when we start to see different out ideas out there, is it considered creative when we start to modify those ideas for our own versus creating net new ideas? And I'm wondering what your thoughts are, because I think that's what some people's fear is when they start to consume all these other ideas is what if it overshapes my own thoughts and my own creative process? Should I not just you know, go, go to a mountain area and think, you know, and come back with this like amazing concept. We've all seen Silicon Valley probably where he does. So, uh, you know, granted he was high, but, uh, you know, what, what would be your position on what, what, what constitutes a creative idea? Okay. There's lots of stuff in here. I mean, I'll give you a punchline and then I'll dive in a little bit. You know, Kanye West, just in the recent tweet bonanza, tweeted out that great artists steal an update and that is nails it on the head. But the sort of the longer version of it is, is that as humans, and I explain a lot of the science of this in the book, we have these two urges, which seem contradictory. We have these two urges. One of them is because we're constantly seeking out safety, we like things that are familiar, right? We like our home. Um, you know, if we see, if we, you know, that chair that's in your living room that your grandmother gave you, that's like kind of ugly, but like, it still feels good. It makes you feel safe. There's this sort of very primal need for safety. But then we have this other urge. We also are people who seek out novelty. We want things that are new. And this is from an evolutionary perspective because we wanted the potential reward of things that are novel. Now, this leaves us with a conundrum. These two things are directly opposed. They literally makes no sense, right? We like things that are both familiar and things that are novel. 
Well, it turns out that this contradiction is actually a really elegant way for our brain to balance risk and reward. The result is that we like things that are new, but not too new. We like things that are the right balance of familiar and novel. So, for example, Star Wars was a Western in space. Literally the same plot, just in space, right? And so as people, we like things that are just the right level of new. Pop songs, for example, right? They don't change huge step functions. They gradually change styles. Think about there's all these interesting studies around the width of genes, for example, literally the width of genes. They get skinnier and bigger, skinnier and bigger, and skinnier and bigger. And they, they over time, they change. And that's one of those things that we like. We like these sort of gradual changes. We like these gradual twists, these gradual in, introductions of novelty. And so um, it is literally impossible it is literally impossible to create ideas that are net new, that are fully new, um, that are interesting. Because what you'll end up creating, if you create something that's truly new, right, truly original, which is so hard to do, truly original, it's just going to scare people. It's going to be too new because we like things as people that are that blend of the familiar and the novel. I love that. I think I think that's also a great framework to give people a lot of ease when they're creating content. And uh, it's funny, I couldn't stop laughing to myself as you were talking about uh, how Star Wars was a Western because I'm like watching Westworld right now, which is basically Jurassic Park, right? Like it's, I, I think it was created by Crichton again. But uh, anyhow, we're, we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, I, I think people are enjoying this. A bit. We'll, they'll be right back after the year from one of our sponsors, plus a special message from JB about conics all right i want to tell you about a really cool company and it's a, it's a couple of tools that i use and my team uses it's called techsmith and it makes it really easy to create professional videos and images so you know those situations where you just need that screenshot on the fly in the moment it could be some marketing stats you need to share with your team it could be like a site that you saw that's really well executed well you know all you got to do is use snag it to capture those results and share out those screenshots and screencasts really cool the other tool that they also have is Camtasia. And Camtasia is kind of geared to those who've never made a video before, but need to get compelling videos out to their audiences. So communicating with visuals like a screenshot or a video is really easy, but you need TechSmith for that. So check out TechSmith at techsmith.com slash content experience. That's techsmith.com slash content experience. Let them know Randy and Anna sent you over. Hey friends, it's Jay Bear. Imagine experiencing all the awesome that is Connex, but live. Everything you love about this podcast, but for two days in three dimensions in a beautiful theater in Toronto. This year, August, you're going to hear from the best speakers about content marketing at Connex, a truly intimate networking experience with 750 marketers. I'm the co-producer of this event organized by my friends at Uberflip, and we're going to bring together brilliant strategists and brand marketers from all over the industry in Toronto. It's August 20th through the 22nd. Every single session is a keynote. The speakers have been handpicked by me. They include Andrew Davis, Scott Stratton, Tamson Webster, Amy Landino, and leaders from DocuSign, 3M, Blue Wolf, Pardot, and more. Get your ticket today at connex.uberflip.com. That's connex.uberflip.com. Use the promo code podcast to save $50 off your ticket. I will see you in Toronto. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We are talking with Alan from TrackMaven and also author of The Creative Curve, 
how to develop the right idea at the right time. Now, Alan, before break, you had started talking about, well, actually, you gave a really great overview about how people shouldn't be too freaked out about creating content because of this blend of basically our need for both the familiar and sort of the unique and the novel. I know in your book, you give a lot of other tips about how to put people at ease. So again, you know, at the top of the call, we kind of talked about how some people just don't feel like they're creative and maybe they stress out whenever they have to get into this creative mode. So what are some of the tips that you give without, of course, giving away the whole book? Um, What are some tips you give to help people get into that creative mindset? So in the book, in the second half of the book, I explain these four things you can do. And one of them that I think is like particularly actionable is, so this is going to sound for a second crazy, but just bear with me for a second. The second one, the entire chapter is titled Imitation. Because one of the things that, you know, we think about creativity, like I said, you know, you can sort of mistakenly think it's all about originality and newness. And actually, it's about the blend of familiarity and newness. And one of the ways to learn familiarity is to imitate. And so what I realized when I was interviewing these creatives is that over and over again, I'd hear the story from them about how they engage in imitation. So, for example, I interviewed Andrew Ross Sorkin. He is, you know, the anchor on Squawk Box. He's the editor of the New York Times Dealbook blog. He wrote the book Too Big to Fail. He is the co-creator of the show Billions on Showtime. He's very good at learning new things. And one of the things he told me that was so interesting, when he first became a journalist, he was like, I don't know how to write. And so what he did is he literally would go to the front page of the New York Times business section. He was a business reporter. And he would find articles that were on the front page um, that were great. And he would literally go through it and he would write out an outline of the structure of the article. Did it start with a quote? Did it start with an anecdote? Um, When did they start bringing in evidence? How did they wrap it up? And he would use these structures to imitate the structure of this great creative work. So he's creating his own stuff on top of it, his own novelty, his own actual content, but he would use the underlying structure of a great creative work. And this is actually something that Ben Franklin writes in his autobiography. He did the same thing when he was 18 to learn how to write. He literally did the same thing. Um, You know, Kurt Vonnegut, for example, at one point was trying to get a master's in anthropology, which as a side note, he gave up on because he said, and I quote, I didn't realize how stupid primitive people were, so just take that for what it is. Um, But what he did is for his anthropology thesis, he actually created these charts where he actually outlined the positive and negative emotional valence of stories. And so he actually found there's these four repeating story arcs, and he realized that one of the story arcs, Rags to Riches, was particularly effective. It was some of the most popular stories were Rags to Riches stories, some of the most commercially successful stories. And so he actually learned how these stories were constructed by breaking them down and learning how to imitate them. And so I think that was one of the things that I thought was most interesting was just like the importance of imitation in creativity, because it gives you that sort of like familiar structure with which to work in. So you can just you can just focus on adding your own little novel twist. You're not recreating the wheel. That's amazing. Now I love that. I think um, I could not agree more. I think especially if you're looking at, you know, the frameworks exist. Um, and just because you're reusing a framework doesn't mean that you're not being creative, you know, like if you're putting your own ideas on top of it or if you're modifying it. Um, I love that. I, I think spotting patterns, I actually even say that I think the best brand copywriters are actually parrots. They're able to they're able to look at a brand style guide or voice and tone or a piece of copy and literally say something different, but parrot back everything that is supposed to be about that brand. I think I think 
the thing that we think of oftentimes as creativity is really this sort of, um, I think in our heads, it's this thing around this person who's such an outside the box thinker. But in reality, like to really think outside the box, you have to know what the box looks like, where the box, the lines end, right? You have to understand the framework. I mean, um, you know, chefs, for example, are a great example of this. Like the most experimental chefs in the world still went to culinary school. They still learned like the straightforward recipe for how to bake a cake for what makes a great omelet because you can't make an experimental, you know, quote unquote, experimental omelet if you don't know what a normal omelet is, right? You don't know where the lines end for the box. That's actually really interesting. I actually heard Anthony Bourdain say something somewhat similar where he was in an interview. And of course, Anthony Bourdain is, you know, world-renowned chef and, you know, seen he's so high up just in that world. And somebody asked him like, oh, you know, do you cook pancakes for your daughter? And he's like, yeah, but if it goes anything beyond the basics, I need a recipe. Like even he was like, yeah, if I, if you want me to make red velvet pancakes, I don't know how to do that. Like I have to go look it up and then I'll modify it. So even, you know, to your point, the world's greatest chefs or even the people who are at the top of their gamers, we see them still need some of that, you know, structure in the boxing. Oh, oh my God. A hundred percent. I mean, chefs, chefs are completely comfortable, um, with the idea of using recipes and, you know, oftentimes, you know, really good chefs sort of break it more down to ratios. Like what's the proper ratio of like salt to sugar and stuff. But like you need that because that's the certain, that that's the taste that your consumers expect when they're tasting something. There's, there's a certain, uh, a sort of a common, a common taste that we have among people because we've been exposed to certain levels of salt. So you'll notice even in like in different cultures, for example, like food has a different level of saltiness because we get used to like, we get used to it. And so if you went to another culture, you may feel like, oh, this food is like, you know, this is not, this is bland. It needs more salt. But to them, that tastes normal. So Alan, I, I, first of all, I'm fully inspired by this podcast. I, I just, I want to go create something right now, which is, you know, so you, mission accomplished. But I think a lot of people listening to this, you know, who are, who are listening to some of these really inspiring people you've gotten to interview are trying to figure out how do I take this to my team? Right, like, um, and and I'm wondering if maybe you could give us a, a story of a, a a brand who's taking some of this and who's executing on the creative, and what are some of the things that they did to get there that you admire? Yeah, so one of the things I thought was really interesting was you know when I when I spent this day with the Ben and Jerry's team, you know one of the things that I found was like you know you have some of the world's most talented creatives, most talented people, um, but. One thing they did so well, and I think is very actionable for organizations, is that process is incredibly data-driven. And not in like a big data, we have to spend millions of dollars kind of way. What they literally do is every year, they come up with 200 what they call flavor profiles. So basically like a one-sentence description of a flavor. So like, you know, vanilla with uh, cherry chunks and sliced almonds. Let's use that for an example. I don't know if that's any good. And then they um, send out literally an email newsletter survey to their email subscribers. And they ask, they have a whole list of them. They ask questions. One, um, how likely are you to buy this flavor? And two, how unique is it? Which, by the way, is basically how familiar and how novel it is. And they want to get that right balance because if they just ask, you know, how likely are you to buy? Well, the entire brand would be caramel and cookie flavors. That's all it would be. So they also, if they just did things that are unique, they'd have all these crazy eccentric flavors that may even taste good, but no one will even try it because it sounds so 
new. And so what they do is they use that data to balance it. And I thought that was such a powerful thing to me because like that's one of those things that anyone can do. Like anyone can survey their customers using their emails. Anyone can get, you know, do Google surveys, which can be as low as a nickel a response or PickFu, which can literally be like, it's like you can, I think, get like 100 people to respond to a survey for like 20 bucks, right? And I just think that element of even these creators who are incredibly talented, who are incredibly successful, they spend an inordinate amount of time listening to their audience, not trying to just tell their audience, this is what you should like. I love that. And it, it's funny, as you tell this Ben and Jerry's example, I'm always reminded, I, I think I've spoken to Jay about this before, Anna, but it's, uh, I think it's Lay's Potato Chips, who every year, and this may just be a Canadian thing, where they do this campaign where they take user ideas for potato chip flavors. So you go in and it's like really weird shit though. Like, you know, you can all of a sudden get like, hot dog with relish, right? As like a flavor or, you know, like, you know, taco Tuesday or like, I don't know what they are. They're just like literally things that we would eat every day. Like it could honestly be back to your pancakes or it could be like pancakes with syrup, right? Like those are the flavors that people want and they deliver those and it, and it, it captures our eye, like whether it lasts or not. I mean, obviously that's where, that's where you need data and that's where you need to figure out if it's, if it's resonating. But I, I, I love this creative you know, bug that, I, that you're selling out there. And, and I think more of us should subscribe to it. And you know, we'll definitely get uh, details on the book. We're going to have people stick around. We've got one more segment here where we get to know you a little bit. We'll take a break and we'll be right back with Alan to get to know some of his preferences. All right, Alan. So we've we've got a few more minutes here, and I figured that we'd just kind of like wrap up our talk by finding out some of the things that you like. So we we've talked about potato chips just before the break. What is your favorite potato chip flavor? Oh my god, potato chip flavor! You're asking like a nutty health food addict for potato chip flavors. Uh, we we all have a favorite, whether we indulge or not. Or pita chips favorite? I don't. I think that counts. All right, all right. We'll give we'll give it to you. Okay. I'm, I'm Randy. This is so stressful. Okay. Then I'm gonna then I'm gonna stress you even more because you you lead the bricks for this. So favorite ice cream flavor? You know, like you lined up the Ben and Jerry's. Like I'll tell you mine. Ben and Jerry's for me. I'm I'm traditional. It's Cherry Garcia. That's a good one. Um, I'm actually. I by the way, I recently read that. This is apparently the favorite flavors of cereal killers. And so don't judge me, but mint chocolate chip. Nice. I'm mint chocolate chip normally, but like if it's not Ben Jerry's, I'm mint chocolate chip. Well, apparently we're cereal killers then. This is like some something about how apparently crazy people like mint chocolate chip. And I was like, uh, no comment. That's all good. My kids hate when it's my birthday because there's going to be a mint, mint chocolate chip birthday cake. And like, they're like, no one makes friends with that. Anna, what's your flavor? What's your go-to? I'm I'm too petrified that I'm on a, a call with two serial killers. I can't even think of a flavor right now. You're like you're like vanilla, like just white. I'm like an angel, you know. It's like for sure there's like some <laughs> some some weird belief on there. No, I actually have a, a confession too. Apparently, I'm a serial killer. Um, no, mint chocolate chip is good, but but um, I love. There is this um, super boutique ice cream store around the corner from my house in Phoenix. If anybody gets there, it's called Sweet Republic, and it's actually real mint chip. They use real mint leaves in it. And it is like another level of refreshing. 
If, if, if either of you, and I know you're going to be here for Conex later this summer, there's this ice cream place. It's called uh, Bang Bang Ice Cream, like super hole in the wall. Ooh. And But every one of their flavors has like a story. So you'll get there and the, in the, they have this one called like Fruity Loop, right? And you're like, oh, tell me about Fruity Loop. And like, well, we soaked Fruit Loops in milk for 24 hours. And, then, and, and I'm just like, all right, you had me at like Fruit Loops. Like that's all I needed to know. But um, it's, it's definitely fun. All right. One last, you know, get to know you question, which usually we ask people like, what are they watching on Netflix? But since you interviewed the chief content officer at Netflix, did he give you any ins for like a show that none of us have heard of? That's really good. Um, I, I, I definitely couldn't tell you if he did, but the one thing I'll tell you, um, about, about Netflix, I thought was so interesting was the thing we forget as Americans is how international Netflix is now. And so one of the big things they're constantly thinking about are which shows will carry over. And so, for example, like Narcos is like super popular in Latin America. And so one of the reasons why they wanted to do that was they knew it would have some more global appeal. So that's actually one of the things that's really interesting is you're going to see on Netflix more and more now these shows that maybe were originally for European audiences that they're bringing over to American subscribers. Um, and so you'll start to get more of like almost an international flavor on Netflix. So I thought that was kind of cool. I'm actually still bummed that Netflix locked down their VPN usage so that like, cause you used to be able to go onto a VPN, change your country and then go to like, like I could go watch like British Netflix and it was amazing or Canadian Netflix. Randy. Yeah. Randy and I were probably watching the same Netflix at some point, but they shut that down because America doesn't get everything as fast as other countries. It's true. Foud Foud is another good international one on there. If you if you watch, I think it's called Foud. I love I love that you guys are like Netflix hackers. This is great. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, we just serial killers and hackers. Yeah, watch out, watch out. Well, Alan, this has been amazing. It's been great to chat with you. Maybe just as a, as a final, you know, call to action. You know, you can tell us where to find the book. Um, so the website is thecreativecurve.com. Um, there's links to all the retailers. You can buy it anywhere books are sold, as they say. And you can also watch uh, the Very Silly Book Trailer, which has a cameo from my four-and-a-half-year-old Corgi. So check it out. Amazing. Amazing. Thanks so much, Alan. Uh, on behalf of Anna Iraq at Convincing Convert, I'm Randy Frisch from Uberflip. If you've enjoyed this podcast with Alan, make sure to check out all the other podcasts. As Alan said, you know, wherever podcasts can be found, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, you name it, we're there. iTunes, of course. Leave us a review. Let us know. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening to Connex, the content experience show. This is Jay Bear, and thanks for listening to the Content Experience Show. Please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcast listening app. Go to contentexperienceshow.com for a complete show archive and greatest hits. That's contentexperienceshow.com. The Content Experience Show is sponsored by Convince and Convert Consulting and by Uberflip. It's produced by my team and I at Convince and Convert. If you're interested in being a guest or a sponsor on the show, just go to convinceandconvert.com.